Welcome to episode 135 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the Vault Studio on the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who now gets to play golf for a living, John Scott Sloat. Yeah, not because of the golf, <laughs> because of the relationships. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Uh, it was funny. I was golfing with someone yesterday who breaks down swings. That's, that's one of the things he does. And so he and I were chatting about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept hitting the ball off the tee and it kept going way left, kept going way left. I'm like, OK. Now, you're left-handed. Though. I'm left-handed. So that's a slice for you. I think so. I'm always confused. Anyway, I was doing that and I asked him, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? He goes, honestly, you need a new club. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he told me. And okay. I said, so I have your permission to blame the equipment. And he said, yes. Wow. It was great. I may yes. never buy a new club because, um, well, the equipment. Yeah, you know. obviously. Obviously, yes. So yesterday was the – what was the official name? The Lancer? The Grace Lancer outing. Yes. Yeah. It's a golf outing that the institution puts on to help raise money for the school. and For athletics yeah. mostly. Yep. Our new president was on the 18th green. If you made a donation of any size, he would putt for you and it would not count against you. Yes. So it was like a free yeah, stroke. Yeah, so I'm going to be honest. I don't know if our new president listens to the show, but um, – He's at least familiar with he's it. He's familiar he, with it. He knows it, it exists. Oh, he knows it exists, yes. Um, but uh, – He's a pretty good golfer from what I hear. I, I Well, at least the, the people I spoke with from yesterday seemed to indicate that his putting was not – on target a lot yesterday. So, but hey, yeah. When you're the president, I mean, it's good to be the president. That's right. Doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. He had his son out there putting with him, so you kind of got a twofer. Okay. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good. Good turnout. They had a morning and an afternoon. Uh, yeah, session, I think it was right? 20, 20 teams in the morning and eighteen in the afternoon. So that's good. Good. Good turnout. Yeah. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at VNSPod. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and on YouTube, Various and Sundry Podcast. We would love for you to leave a five-star rating and if you'd like, a review. And uh, today we're going to try something a little bit different. We've been teasing this and I think today is the day. We are going to uh, make space for commercial breaks in the show. At least we think we're going to do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, by the time this launches later today, they may not have filled those little gaps with uh, – Oh, they have to sell them. They have to sell the spots? I think so. – I, I I am not sure how it works yet. Okay. So uh, we will proceed as if there will be commercial breaks and I think later they can add them even so so maybe if you listen to the episode today this is unusual recording on a tuesday same day it drops but uh if you're listening to it maybe a week later or something like that maybe by then the commercial breaks have been filled in so we shall see so we're just giving we're, we're just giving you a heads up on that but uh all right john let's uh let's check in with the world of sports here what uh what's been going on well, uh, I think the biggest news is Bill Russell passed away Yeah, uh, over the weekend. Sunday, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, how old was Bill? I, I think he was – I could be wrong on this. I thought it was 82. OK. In his 80s. Yeah. So. so definitely a full life. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
obviously uh, – Best known for his, for winning 11 NBA championships with the Celtics. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dominant center, uh, especially on the defensive end. And um, if I remember correctly, I think I heard this. I didn't watch much of, the, of, of any of the coverage of this. But I thought I heard that he was the first uh, African-American to be the head coach of a major professional sports team. I think that's correct. Hmm. So um, obviously a legendary figure in the game of basketball. And uh, and as we were talking before the show, off air, um, had remarkable confidence yes. even into his elder years. Yeah, yeah. I remember when he said he was going to – he would uh, – he would dominate. <laughs> That's your uh, softened version. I may be your, cleaning up the your, language. Your kid-friendly version. Mm-hmm. Yes. He would dominate uh, the the modern NBA players. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, y- you kind of have to have that that level of confidence and arrogance, probably, to be that level of player. Oh yeah. But um, you know, it's always interesting to compare across eras like that. Um, when it comes to – obviously, uh, I think it's undeniable that players on the whole become much more athletic than they were when Bill Russell was playing. And uh, as you pointed out, there's also much more of an emphasis on conditioning, on nutrition and more attention paid to oh, yeah. how do you fine-tune the body so that it performs that it's – Maximum capacity. Like what was it? LeBron spent a million dollars on his uh, physical fitness. It's it's probably that. I mean, I know he's got a. I mean, I know he's got he's got like a, a small staff around him. Yeah, it's it's probably eight to ten people. I'm sure a nutritionist in there. A nutritionist, a chef. Yeah, you know, I'm sure personal I'm... trainers, masseuse, you know, all those sorts of things, um, to maximize performance and that kind of thing, but. Uh, and Bill Russell didn't have that. <laughs> no, he did not. No, he did not. Uh, so uh, legendary uh, NBA player, typically if you make one of your you know top 10, top 15 players in NBA history, he's probably yeah. on that or at least into the discussion. Can't tell the story of basketball without him. That's true. That's yeah. true. Um, also off the field news, uh, finally the NFL has announced – Finally. My yes, goodness. It's taken forever. And they buried it as well. Yeah. I felt like it was a busy news week with Bill Russell dying and yeah. MLB trade deadline and, and yes. all these things. Yeah. Deshaun Watson, quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, uh, has been suspended six games for um, inappropriate behavior with um, masseuses. Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning up the dialogue a bit there. Yeah. As trying. Well. Yeah. Trying. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one and of those, they're going to appeal that. Yeah, one of those games is against the Jets. I think the Jets have the Browns in week two or three this okay. year. So I think Jacoby Brissett is the backup there. Yeah, I think that's right. Former Colts quarterback. Mm-hmm. And former Patriots. So your thoughts on that? Right amount of games, too many, not enough? I don't know. I, I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea what's uh, – it feels like too few to me when mm-hmm. they – uh, who did they get it for a season for gambling? They they got somebody for almost a full year for gambling on football. 
Oh, was that? Do you know what I'm was, talking about? It was a wide receiver for the Falcons, wasn't it? But I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, it, they got him for a full season and uh, for for gambling on football. And this this feels far more severe. Maybe it doesn't have direct impact on well. The that's sport. the thing. Anytime you have gambling involved, um, that's where you get the integrity of the game, and that's why that tends to get punished pretty severely. But uh, I think we can all agree on the sort of morality scale. Sure, what Deshaun Watson is accused of is far worse than uh, gambling. Um, but uh, yeah, I I'm a little surprised it was this low. Yeah, I expected at least eight, if not more. a full a full season. Um, so, yeah, just it's a PR nightmare. And uh, I've talked to at least a couple of Browns fans who are so conflicted that uh, they're debating whether they even want to root for the team this year. Really? Because yeah. because it was so light. Well, because of... just because they because the Browns signed Deshaun Watson to begin with. Really interesting. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, yeah, that'll be uh, be curious to see if that gets adjusted at all as a result of the appeal. Well, normally they come out with that uh, the suspension, and then it gets appealed and it gets reduced by a few games. Right. It feels like right. Yeah. So, um, does it go down to four? That feels really light. That feels really light because even the um, maybe they appeal and go to eight. I I don't know that they end up getting <laughs> bumped up, but. Yeah, it's just – man, four would seem like so light. I mean isn't that basically what you get for the performance-enhancing drugs? I think so, yeah. For your – like after – on your second offense, I think. Like mm-hmm. your first offense, you get the warning. You go through the training or you know whatever and then the second time they get – they ding you for four games. By the way, why does it have to be an even number? Like you and I are naturally going four, six, eight. Why can't it be seven? Well – before last year, I would have argued because there's an even number of games in the season. Yeah. But now it's 17 games, yep. not 16. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, why? I, I, but we're naturally talking about four, six, eight. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why not? Not five, seven, and nine. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 can't, I can't explain that. Um, how are your Mets doing? They've won seven in a row. Trade deadlines tonight, and Jacob Degrom pitches for the first time this season tonight. Okay, so I mean, they're going to run him out there for four innings, probably. I would say four or five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine he's on a maybe eighty pitches limit. Yeah. Um, hopefully, stretching him out a little bit longer. But yeah, ex- excited to have him back. They've won seven in a row. Hopefully, tonight is eight, and uh, we can keep the good times rolling. Okay. All right. Well, I think that brings us to our first commercial break. We'll be right back after this. And we're back. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Who I, knows I, I, what I, happened I, during I, that time, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah, that DraftKings ad was was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I I might have I I can't remember if I checked off uh like they give I you hope a sports gambling list. isn't isn't part of it. I there's a whole like Set of categories that you can say, I don't want ads in this category. Well, you know, it was, I'm pretty sure I checked off gambling that you can't. I, w- I was listening to a conservative political podcast the other day, and all of a sudden they had a, one of these ads inserted. It was Planned Parenthood. 
was the ad. Oh, wow. Um, I would not be for having a Planned Parenthood no, ad no. And so, in our podcast. Please and, let us yeah, know. And if you, if, if you as a listener hear an ad that you're um, uncomfortable with or upset by, please let us know. Um, I don't – if we can figure out what category that ad comes from, we'll we just get can rid of exclude it, yeah. the category. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. I'd be fine with a Lowe's or a Home Depot ad. Yeah, that sure. That sounds great. Yeah, that that would be that would be fine. Um, we should probably talk about our uh, our main topic here, John. <laughs> yeah, it's not commercial breaks. <laughs> it is not commercial breaks. Um, it is uh, broadly speaking. Uh, I think our topic is um, essentially uh, why does church history matter? Mm-hmm. And it's been prompted by. Uh, I mean, in one sense, it's prompted by we both love church history. Mm-hmm. You actually teach church history here at Grace. Yep. And uh, there was an article that the Gospel Coalition put up uh, entitled 13 Reasons We Need Church History. And so uh, we'll kind of base off of that article, but I'm sure our conversation will uh, wander um, all across this. But um, maybe we'll start with this. Um, when did you first begin to appreciate and then love church history? Oh, my goodness. Um well, I, I think when I took church history in college, uh, I think that was the first time I really grew in appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know too much. I learned as I went, uh, grew in appreciation for it, and then, and then I would say I flatlined on it. I didn't read a ton. I picked up a few Puritan paperbacks along the way, okay. um, but I, I would say it really started exponentially growing as I taught church history uh, for the college and the seminary here. Okay. And I would say that's that's really when it uh, I got a got a love for history. I think as I, I think as I hit about twenty nine or thirty is when it really picked up. Okay. How about yourself? Yeah, I think um, I think the the sort of seeds were planted probably actually when I was an undergrad at a secular institution. Believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, I went to Ohio University in Athens, and. Uh, I took a um, a class, a history class on the history of the Reformation, hmm. and it was fascinating. And the guy who taught it was not a believer, but he was also very like, but he was a good historian. Yeah, and so he uh, he made it very interesting. He was very fair. There was no like agenda driven. Uh, I'm going to make you hate. You know, I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong about Christianity. Sure. It was just. These are the things that happened. These were the currents happening, and these were the key players and why they did what they did. And um, and then I also took an early Christianity history of early Christianity course from uh, from a different professor there at at OU, who was just very engaging, very entertaining, hmm. and that uh, that also kind of sparked the interest. Yeah. And when I went to so when I went to seminary, I originally thought I was going to go. The academic route in systematics. I was mm-hmm. going to be a systematic theologian, but then I took a couple church history classes. I'm like, I think I really like church history, and then I sort of became fascinated with Jonathan Edwards. Hmm. And for probably almost a year of my time in seminary, I thought, I think I'm going to become a Jonathan Edwards scholar. Hmm. And that was uh, that was something that uh, had captured my interest. Uh, eventually. Kind of came back around to, I want to be in the text. Mm-hmm. 
um, the text of Scripture. And so that kind of moved me back towards New Testament. But um, yeah, just encountering Edwards was a huge piece of that. And um, just his mind, his his life, his ministry um, just captivated me. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the genesis of that. Hmm. But Any particular works of Edwards that really captured? Um, well, I imagine the excellencies of Christ, that sermon particularly. Right. So, you know, I think a lot of people, when they get exposed to Edwards, they get exposed to um, sinners in the hands of an angry sure, God. Sure, sure. And they get um, probably exposed to religious affections mm-hmm. and and maybe freedom of the will. Yeah. Those are probably the three most uh, commonly talked about Edwards works. But for me, the um, – what was interesting was just reading his sermons. Hmm. And one of those was The Excellencies of Christ, which uh, I highly encourage people to just Google it. You can find it freely available online. Um, but his ability to stir affection for Christ and um, and just approach – this is part of the beauty of Puritan preaching. They were able to approach a subject or a text from every conceivable angle and squeeze out the theological significance of it. And so it was just, just captivating. Yeah. Do you consider – do you consider – I know Edwards is sort of a borderline. Do you consider him a Puritan? He is a – I'd say he's a – he's a transitional figure. OK. Um, he's a late Puritan in that sense because all of his theological influences were basically Puritan. Mm-hmm. But he also was a man of the early enlightenment. Yeah. And so that he's sort of that transitional bridge figure between kind of what I think of in terms of Puritan versus enlightenment. Yeah. Do you – how would how would early American history have changed if he because he died fairly young? He died at fifty, well, either fifty four or fifty five. I can't remember if he had turned. Uh, actually, I think it would have been fifty four. So, what if he had lived another twenty years? How would that have changed the American founding? Do you think, or would it would it have? Well, what what would have been especially interesting is that he died in seventeen fifty eight. Yeah, I, I don't know what he would have done. Yeah, in the lead up to the Revolutionary War, it would that that would that to me is the most interesting piece of that is would he have been um, a proponent of independence or would he have been a supporter? Mm-hmm. My guess is he probably would have gone with the independence movement. That's my guess. Well, I I could see him seeing the crown <laughs> uh, kind of stepping on the toes of the mm-hmm. of the um, of the colonists. Yes, uh, with the Stamp Act, and you know, you know, a number mm-hmm. of things going on at that time, and 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 pushing back, uh, wanting to push back against yeah. that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but Edwards is not always the easiest to read. Yeah, he, he takes a little bit more of an investment, I think, at times compared to maybe some other writers. Um, but it's paid off in spades mm-hmm. in terms of if you invest the the, the time and the energy. Yeah. So, who else do you like from church history? I mean, I mean, we know we know about Edwards, but but mm-hmm. who who else do you like? I, obviously, we're deviating from the list here, but that was a bit of the plan. Yeah, it's our show. Um, I I have enjoyed reading John Owen in terms of his writings. Okay. Um, I I do enjoy Mortification of Sin. Uh huh. 
Glory of Christ. Glory of Christ. Um, and he's got a massive commentary in the book of Hebrews mm. that uh, – it's like seven volumes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, – which I think we'll actually be dipping into a bit as we preach through CC, uh, uh, Hebrews at CCC. Yeah. Have we announced that yet? Is that public? Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. That it is. is public. Yep. OK. Yep. So um, – and then I I always have enjoyed the early, early church. OK. Like, like the post-apostolic period, hmm. like the second century. Yeah. Um, obviously, you get guys eventually like Augustine or Augustine. I'm not sure. How yeah. to pronounce that. Good yeah. luck. You get people on both sides of that. And so, But um, yeah, I think um, it's just fascinating to see the develop – to me to see the development of the church mm-hmm. and see them wrestling with – different uh, theological and historical issues and how how to live within the Roman Empire and how eventually Christianity in essence conquers yeah. the Roman Empire. Yeah, um, as, as, a, as a grassroots movement. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. one of the things I try to communicate in church history that uh, I can't remember what Roman historian uh, wrote this, but he's like complaining that like these, these Christians – this Christianity, it's spreading not through schools, not through these things, but in but in tanneries and bakeries and mm-hmm. you know just sort of as people are working, yeah. uh, that that the gospel is is moving out, and yeah. uh, I think that's really encouraging. Yes, yeah, for sure. Through the first and second century. What about you? Any go-to historical figures that oh, you? Oh my goodness! Well, I knew you were going to ask me that once I asked you that. Uh, <laughs> it's only fair. I've been drawn recently to Thomas Watson. Uh, so I've been reading some uh, Thomas Watson uh, uh, picture of a godly man with a – Give us just a brief – where does he fit in into the historical yeah, timeline uh, roughly? My goodness. I'm not even sure I know. Uh, seven, I believe 1700s England, okay. uh, I believe. Uh, but uh, Heart of Christ, um, uh, uh, picture of a godly man drawn in pencil I, I believe is the <laughs> subtitle. Uh but but just a where where Edwards can be a little thick. I find Thomas Watson mm-hmm. a, a fairly easy Puritan to read. Yeah. So I've I've appreciated him uh, quite a bit. Um, been you know I make I make all my students read a little bit of Origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, read the uh, force them to read Polycarp's account. Uh, you know accounts of Polycarp. Um, yeah. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate lots of uh, those. Um, readings as well. I'm trying to think of others. I've, uh, enjoy Augustine, Augustine, whatever, yeah. however you pronounce it. Whatever yeah. we're calling him this the week. The confessions are wonderful. <laughs> I've tried to make my way. I've, you've made your way through City of God. I've, mm-hmm. I got a long about, time ago. I got about halfway through City of God and and put it down. It's a large work. It's massive. <laughs> I did get a ten dollar copy at uh, at a conference and yeah, been. Off and on over the past three years, making my way through it. And yeah, yeah. Conceptually, it's great. Um, it's just a sl- it's a long book. It's a slog. It is. Yeah. It is. All right. So um, let's talk a little about why why does church history matter for the church? I mean, you know, um, I, I think one of the general characteristics of the evangelical church, broadly considered, is um, a a lack of historical 
rootedness or even consciousness is maybe the right to go. That for a lot of average people sitting in the pews, their historical consciousness of the church goes back maybe 20 years, mm-hmm. maybe 30. Yeah. Essentially Pro- their lifetime maybe. Yeah, probably as far back as Billy Graham. Yeah, that's probably right. And, then, and then even that might be generous if you're talking like early Billy Graham. Sure. Um, so why does it matter? So maybe this isn't a, a good point at all, but I'll, but I'll make it anyway. I was a part of a like little community pastors gathering four or five years ago now. And uh, they were saying, how can churches work to better our community? It was sort of, was sort of like the broad uh, thought. And this one guy stood up and goes on a tirade against like, we need to get rid of denominations. That's what's going to make our community better. If we get rid of these divisions and everybody can just be in the (laughs) same church and hear the same preaching and that's going to unite us and bring us together if we get rid of the divisions and denominations. And I just kind of went, I think you miss the fact that like people died (laughs) over some of these ideas. Yes. Um, These things exist for a reason. Yes. uh, And uh, yeah, you know, some wars were fought Mm -hmm. uh, over over some of these – over things like baptism and, you know, know, things like that. And uh, I think we forget, you know, one of the questions you have to answer is how did did we come to be – how did we come to be at this place? And and I think church history helps us get there. So that's my long-winded way of making that point. Yeah. Uh, that's actually a good entry point into some of the stuff from the article itself. Um, you know, there's thir- he gives 13 principles for why studying church history is By crucial. the way, if I'm ever making a list, it's never going to be 13. Yeah. That's a that's a poor number. No, poor number itself. OK. I'd rather have 14. You're that superstitious. I'm a little stitious. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, his third uh, point in the article is – uh, history fits into the divine drama of creation, fall, and redemption. And I, I think that's a good helpful reminder. Sometimes we can talk about the – even the storyline of the Bible mm-hmm. and you know, we do the whole creation, fall, you know, God's promises through – to Abraham and to Israel and then we get to Jesus and then we get to the early church and then you know, we, we realize, OK, well – that's kind of where the Bible ends. You know, you've got Revelation, which is, you know, depending on how you interpret that, like most people think pointing to the very end. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's this gap between like when Acts ends and the very end. Yeah. Well, that's where we are. Yep. We're still part of the ongoing history of redemption. And so having a good understanding of uh, of church history helps us – better understand where we're at in that larger drama of redemption. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also just think, um, you know, there, there's the there's the, the old cliche of, you know, those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just amazed at the number of contemporary issues that pop up in the church. And they're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? The, the church is you know, like, what do we do? Like, how do we respond to issue A here. It's like, well, actually, if you knew a little bit of church history, you'd realize that the church has already had to face something pretty similar to this. Not yeah. the exact same thing, sure, but pretty similar to this. 
And if we look at how they handled it and responded to it, that might provide some resources for us to think about how we respond as contemporary believers to this. Either positive or negative, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. right? Like, oh, the church did a really excellent job in that moment or, oh my gosh, or did a really poor job yeah. in that moment. For sure. For sure. Um, so I think that's one one uh, helpful point out of there. What, what else from this uh, article would you want to highlight here? Um, my goodness. Uh, I, I think number five, God has unique purposes for his church, right? That, that uh, if there's one thing that comes out in church history is that, that God is working in the world mm-hmm. through his church. Uh, and that is how he is going to work uh, in the future, is, is going to be through the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the fact that God has unique purposes for it, I think we can, we can miss that. Um, yeah. There are some people that, that want to sort of question some of the institutional church and go out and do their own thing. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, his first point there I think is also um, very helpful. He, he entitles it, Remembering is Vital. It highlights throughout scripture. Uh, That's one of the more common commands that God gives his people. Remember, remember, remember. Um, And warns about, you know, like we just got through Deuteronomy and our church preaching through that. And, you know, the number of times you see in there um, the warnings of you're going to get into the land. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to forget all that the Lord your God has done for you. You're going to go worship these other gods whom you've not known, had nothing to do with you, and you're going to forget all that the Lord your God has done for you. Yep. Um, we're just as prone to forgetting. Yeah. And, and obviously there is a special place for biblically revealed church history that we need to remember and reflect upon. But there's also a place for celebrating and remembering uh, what God has done in the history of the church that's not recorded in the pages of Scripture, but mm-hmm. is every – um, but but is still very valuable uh, as a uh, as an encouragement for faith, as a testimony of God's faithfulness to His people, um, and I think this can even be translated down onto a personal level. We are so prone to forget the ways that God um, intervenes in our lives mm-hmm. that if we don't take time to remember them, to record them, and then to remember them. How easily we forget, you know, things that like, oh, yeah, I was so worked up about this situation and then God came through. And then two months later, like uh, what? We're doubting God's goodness, his faithfulness, his providence or whatever. Like, But he just came through for you. But you've already forgotten oh, yeah. what you've done for him. And, and church history is a more formalized way for the corporate people of God to remember what he has done for us in those ways. Yeah. Even on a corporate level for a specific congregation, you know, um, different ways they've seen God at work in their corporate life as a body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What else you got on here? Anything? Uh, Number six, theological development doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, I I just think that's super important to remember that – there are other things going on. You know, I always try to remember – I always try to remind my students that like we're going to spend like an hour in Nicaea. We're going to talk about it. We're going to engage with it. 
these were people that had lives that had mm-hmm. the same 24 hour days. Yeah. Had the same calendar we had, you know, and, and, but, but this took place over goodness months mm-hmm. of conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it didn't happen in an hour in a classroom. Yeah. Like, well, this makes sense. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is always interesting um, when you look at confessional statements. I think that if you were a – if someone had a almost expert level grasp of church history, I think you could hand them a random confessional statement from sometime in the history of the church and they could probably place it as in terms of when it was written. Mm-hmm. Because every confessional statement – is rooted in its historical context. Yes, yes. Especially – and not that, that – that doesn't mean that the, the truth of the gospel changes or anything like that. But what it means is look at what issues are mentioned and what issues are not mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that gives you a very good indicator of what uh, what particular issues were in that historical moment – deemed to be most essential or even most debated mm-hmm. in that context. I mean I mean looking at some of those early creeds, uh, it appears as though the Gnostics have <laughs> mm-hmm. have gained a foothold and, right. and the church, the bishops, the pastors are coming together yeah. and being like, we got we got to deal with this. This right. this is an issue. Um, and it it seems to be reflected. You have to do a little mirror reading, right? Yeah. Um, but but think about even – think about how many doctrinal statements, confessional statements uh, throughout the history of the church have said anything about, um, about sexuality and about gender. Yeah. I'm hard-pressed to come up with any before the last – I'll be generous and say 100 years. I'd be willing to say 30 yeah, I was going to say twenty-five. Yeah, um, well, why is that? Because there were there was no debate over it. Yeah, there, there that was a settled, undebated issue in terms mm-hmm. of issues of sexuality and gender. Yeah, and now if you you know if you look at if you look at a church's website, at least some of them are now going to have a statement in there in terms of their confession of faith. Of where they stand on, you know, we believe there are that God created human beings, male and female, and that marriage is the union of one biological male and one biological woman. Sure, you know, you're not going to find those statements in the in the early church. You're not going to find those statements in the Reformation because that issue wasn't up for debate. Mm -hmm. It was settled, and so. Even having a sense of the cultural environment in which confessional statements come out of can give you a good sense of, oh, because sometimes you'll read older statements. You're like, that's interesting that that made the cut in terms of being in there. Yeah. You know, things like um, in the whole fundamentalist liberal uh, liberalism debate, things like um, like the virgin birth of, uh, you know, Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, the mm-hmm. virgin conception. It's like. It's an interesting, you know, thing to toss in there necessarily. Well, it's because there were attacks on miracles and things like that. Sure. So you're like, okay, well, we're going to make it clear where we stand on that. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sure we could talk about each and every one of these points, but we will link the article in the show notes for you to take a look at. We'd also recommend a couple of uh, probably broad overviews is the best way to describe them of church history. Uh, The one I use in class is Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language. Uh, New edition came out this year. Did you know that? Fifth edition, I think. Fifth edition. You told me about this. Yeah, I'm not a huge – I like the fourth edition a little bit better, but we do use the fifth edition because that's what you can get. Right. And it switched publishers as well. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So that's Uh, that's by Bruce Shelley. But the fifth edition is – With his son Marshall. Updated by yeah. his son Marshall, correct? Mm-hmm. Is, is Bruce Shelley no longer living? Yeah, he. I think he's been. I think he passed away fifteen oh, okay. plus years ago. Gotcha. And then the other resource we've got down there is a book by Mark Knoll entitled "Turning Points: Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity," which I think is also on its, you know, fourth or fifth edition. Yeah, yeah. I remember I had the second edition when I took. Church history. Yeah, I, I don't remember what edition I have probably. But um, those are some good resources to check out. And um, all right, let's take a break. And when we come back from the break, we will do This Day in Sports History. All right. Back from that riveting commercial break. This Day in Sports History. John, okay. what do we have? Uh, August 2nd, 2022. That's today. Uh, but it feels in, weird to record to record yeah, on the day it launches. I'm, I'm right? used to seeing like the next day. Yeah. Uh, but 1938. <coughs> excuse me. Still got that lingering cough. Almost made it through the whole Almost. episode. 1938. Uh, MLB conducts the first test of bright yellow baseballs during uh, the Dodgers and Cardinals doubleheader. Yeah. Obviously, that didn't stick. It did in softball. Yes. Because they do have the bright yellow baseballs in, or softballs in mm-hmm. uh, softball. Uh, 1982, Oakland outfielder Ricky Henderson steals his 100th uh, base of the season in a 6-5 to five win versus Seattle. Yes. That's a lot of steals. That, that is. And, I mean, obviously the game goes through its ebbs and flows and evolves. But mm-hmm. like the stolen base feels like it's a forgotten element of, Absolutely. of the modern game. Absolutely. I mean, you have a big year if you have 30. Yes. Um, yeah. And Ricky Henderson was a character. Yes. Spoke about himself in the third person. Uh, <laughs> yes. Anyway. Did not lack for confidence. Yeah. Uh, 1992, uh, Tom Seaver, uh, Raleigh Fingers, Hal Newhauser and Bill McGowan are inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's a good group. That is. That's a real good group. Now, I guess I really only know the first two. Uh, well, Tom, yeah, terrific. That, that's, that's really what I'm basing it off of as well, yes. Yes. Uh, did you see they put up a statue of Tom Seaver uh, and they had the wrong jersey number or <laughs> something along those lines on uh, the statue? No. Well, Outside of the Mets Stadium or something? Yeah, outside or? of City Field. Okay. Um, it came out like maybe a week after the statue was revealed that, that something's wrong on it. I think it's the number. Nice. I have to, I have to double check I mean, that. Raleigh Fingers was famous for his mustache. Yeah, yeah. Very good relief pitcher as well. But that he had the, I'd assume so. I assume the, they don't put people in there for their mustache. The, the curly extensions on the end there. and Yeah. You know they do that with wax? They, yeah. they like really get them going. Yeah. Uh, that takes too much effort. I don't want to buy mustache wax. Well, 
Side note here. How do you feel? It feels like mustaches are, are making a comeback. I think the 1980s are making a bit of a comeback. And so the mustache <laughs> is, a, is a holdover. OK. Because, yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan. I, I can't, I can't grow, grow a good mustache. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of guys can. Yeah. Well, I think I, I can think of two right now. Some that have been mentioned on this podcast <laughs> uh, that uh, that can't grow a good mustache. Now, I would love to see that individual wax his mustache and see what that would be like. My father-in-law did that. Did he really? He he did the like he did the the curled up ends like Raleigh Fingers had. And oh wow, yeah, yeah. So um, fascinating man. Anyway, anyway, ninety-six. Uh, the star-studded. United States men's basketball team, the Dream Team 3, beat Yugoslavia 95-69 to uh, to win the gold medal at the Atlanta Olympics. Was there any question at the 96 Olympics that we were going to win the gold? Not then. Yeah. No, not then. Uh, and 2012, another Olympics one. American swimmer Michael Phelps wins an unprecedented third consecutive gold medal uh, in the 200-meter uh, of the individual medley at the London Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was just ridiculously dominant. Yeah. Um, yeah. He might be. Is he the greatest American Olympian ever? Hey, he's got to be up there. He's up there. He's got to be up there. For sure. Uh, so who do you like out of that list? Well, some good choices here. I'm pro- I'm willing to discard the yellow baseballs. Yep, me too. Um. I'm probably between Phelps and Ricky Henderson. Okay. Uh, I'd go with Phelps. Phelps? Yep. Phelps it is. All right. One thing you liked? Uh, I got breakfast with Nate in Ohio this morning. Delightful time. Yes. Yeah, he was in town for the Lancer golf outing. So. Yes. That was nice. And you got some time with him last night? I did. Yeah, he, he came by for dinner last night. Um, so good to catch up with him. Um, <clears throat> same old Nate from Ohio. Yes. Yes, very much so. He's a classic. Uh, my one thing I liked, uh, I'm just sort of doing an expanded weekend here. So my birthday was last Thursday. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so we- 37? <laughs> uh, 49. Whew. Yeah, so I've start, started my last year in my 40s. You don't look a day over 42. Well, I try. I try. Um, but uh, so Friday night, we celebrated my birthday as a family. Uh, so John came home. Uh, Jake was there as, long as, as well as uh, his lovely girlfriend, Autumn. Then Saturday, we went to the great state of Ohio. Um, played some disc golf at Defiance College. Nice. Uh, shopped for some Buckeye gear. I heard about this. I talked, and, to, I talked to your family about that yes, on Sunday. Yes. And um, had dinner with my parents. Um, yeah. And then Sunday, we had um, uh, – there's a couple from our church that's doing a church plant in North Manchester, probably yeah. starting in about a year. But they're getting ready to go off to – the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. So we had them over for dinner. Nice. Um, fun to hang out with them. And they brought over their their new puppy. Oh, okay. Isla. Isla. It's a mini 
it's golden a golden doodle. doodle. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to to him about that at church. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then you know, yesterday Nate from Ohio stops in, so it was a very, very social, full social yeah. weekend, but very enjoyable. So, all right, we have talked commercial breaks. We've talked sports. We have talked the value of church history. We've talked about Michael Phelps. We've talked about uh, social engagements with good friends. And so I think, by definition, we have covered our various and sundry topics. And so all that's left to say is, until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later. Later.